The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Everybody, I'm really happy to have Luna speak. Uh, many of you know we have usually one guest speaker a month, either a visiting teacher or sometimes a community member like Lewis. And so it's really interesting to see how the practice unfolds in uh, people's lives. And Lewis's life is especially interesting, at least to me, maybe to many of you, as a poet, a musician, an activist, an educator, really fits the word elder, not because he has gray in his hair. It's just because of what he's done in the world and uh, you get a sense of when you're talking to him. One of the things that I like seeing Lewis around the center, given that he's done so much in his life, he comes to this Buddhist practice and his mind just seemed very fresh and enthusiastic and uh, just uh, a real beginner in the best sense of the word. So we're really happy to have you here tonight, Lewis, and the title of this talk is We Are Here to Awaken. Amen. <laughs> well, introvert that I am, here I am in front of all of you. Um, one of the questions that came to mind is, well, why did you come out here? Um, I think a lot of people in the community know me as a poet, but I'm wondering what kinds of things did you hope to hear? Or what, did, what was your motivation? That's a real question. I'm hoping some of you offer to answer. Why did you come? I thought you were from someplace else. Huh? I thought you were from someplace else. <laughs> I thought it was from someplace else. <laughs> I don't know if you've met this movement and doing a workshop. And uh, maybe I was curious how you continue doing a workshop. My friend said you are cool out there that you can publish. Okay. by the fact that in 2011 I turned 66. I just kind of find that fascinating that the factor of 11 would show up in my birthday in the year of 2011. So I'm kind of curious about a lot of things um, ever since I entered the world. I was uh, born on the far south side of Chicago in a community called Princeton Park. 
which was uh, housing development. It looked like a project, basically, but it was pri privately owned. And uh, there was uh, Illinois Central ran behind our house where I lived. And, you know, the Illinois Central is what brought a lot of people from the Mississippi Delta to Chicago. And, you know, around the time I was born, it was a major migration underway of African-Americans out of the South. And um, so part of my family came to Chicago. The other part of the family came uh, out of Canada into the U.S. And I'm not sure if we were legal or not. <laughs> um, you know, one of the interesting parts of uh, my heritage is that my, on my mother's side of the family, um, before the Civil War started, my great, 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 maybe great grandmother was a free woman of color living in uh, an area called Paris, Kentucky. And she had about uh, six or seven children who were also free, but um, the owners were trying to enslave her children, too. And this was unacceptable to her. So um, at some point, my grandmother and grandfather decided that they were going to leave. And... At the last moment, they had gotten maybe about nine miles out of town. My grandfather decided it was best if he go back. And so, as the story goes, uh, they sang a song together, and my grandmother and her children left. I think one of their first stops was in Indiana. They were in Terre Haute for a while, and somebody tried to enslaved them there and from there they went to Dresden, Ontario. Dresden, Ontario was one of the endpoints on the Underground Railroad and in that very town was a man named Josiah Hinson. Josiah Hinson was the man that Harriet Beecher Stowe based her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin on. And at some point, um, my family and that family intermarried and, uh, of course, produced more children. Um, but eventually, um, some of the family stayed in Ontario and some began to wander into the United States, primarily into uh, Michigan. Uh, I have... Uh, relatives who are buried in a town called uh, St. Clair, Michigan. So, um, at the end of the Second World War, people re returning from the war, um, my parents were living in a neighborhood called... Can I move around? Mm -hmm. They were living in a... You can put that in your pocket. In my pocket, okay. They were living in a neighborhood called Englewood, which before African-Americans moved into it, it was a Jewish settlement. 
And um, the block that my grandparents lived on had Orthodox Jews here and there, and the synagogue was at the end of the block on the corner. And uh, I have memories of you know playing in front of that synagogue when I was a kid. Um, it was a real community. Um, the people that lived there, and right now I'm thinking primarily about the African Americans, they came from everywhere. But what they had in common was an understanding of what community was about and what extended family was about. And so during the Depression, their survival strategy was to live as a community and in a lot of ways live as an extended family. Um, that was primarily the gift that my parents gave me, understanding community and understanding extended family. Um, living on the far south side of Chicago at that time in that housing development, we were certainly in the bounds of Chicago, but I very much felt like uh, it was like being in the country at the same time. Um, across the railroad tracks, there was a small forest and a pond that had frogs and turtles and stuff like that. Um, during the 60s, the city swallowed up all of that and eradicated all of that nature that I was quite fond of as a child. I was a wanderer. Uh, I was very happy to wander off by myself, uh, very quiet. There was a field not far from our house, tall grass. Um, I liked to wander in that field and sometimes come across you know, a spider that's on a web. And I could watch that spider for, I don't know, a long time. And I would notice that the sound of the wind and the grass and the insects and the conveyor belt from the yard where coal was being <coughs> processed somehow, it had a whistle whine. And all of that was kind of music to me. The sound of nature and even the sound of you know, industry that was not that far away from me at the time. Um, I really loved that environment that I grew up in. I had multiple mothers, multiple fathers, multiple. I only had one biological brother, but I had other brothers and other sisters. There were homes that, in particular, two homes, three homes that I could Maybe knock on the door, maybe not, walk in, sit down, just join in on whatever was ever happening. I could take a nap if I wanted to. I could have something to eat if I wanted to. Um, one of those three families that we were particularly close to in a familial way were the Martins. And uh, my brother and I called... Mr. and Mrs. Martin, Mom and Pop. And their two children referred to my parents the same way. Um, at an early age, I became very, I was 
because of the time that I was living in, the environment I was living in, I was very aware of color. And I was aware of the fact that uh, maybe compared to a lot of my classmates, I had a pretty fair complexion. And I also noticed that some kids who were smarter than me maybe didn't get treated as fairly as me. So nobody talked about it necessarily, especially in the school environment, but you know, 1950s Chicago, um, before the civil rights, if we went downtown, for instance, with my mom, um, if we were hungry, one of the rituals was to look into the window of a restaurant and see if any other people of color were sitting in there. If they were in there, and not just a matter of working in the kitchen, you knew you could go in there and have something to eat. Um, I learned a lot about color in that environment. Uh, I know that some of our, some of the adults who were particularly fair, um, you find out a lot of things when you wander off out of your community. You find out a lot about what's really going on because people don't necessarily know who you are. Um, but early poem. I hope I can remember it by heart. Daniel Jones, 1885 to 1975. If you looked into my grandfather's face, where all the times and trials have come to rest, into his eyes, you would see where all the world merges into one dream, a linking unity like the earth, the sun, and the rain, carrying our one soul on this wheel of time, living and dying, living and dying, carrying our one soul to a new earth. I wrote that when I was around 19 years old, and I had been, of course, brought up in a Christian family, a Christian community. Um, my mother's side of the family were, were Catholics. They were all Catholics until they moved to Chicago, and my grandmother, uh, Florence, who was a pianist, she was, she was a concert quality pianist, but marriage and bearing children didn't allow her to continue with that. But uh, she was one of those people who could go to Weebolts and try on clothes and not be refused until she showed up with her kids and they realized who she was. But the first Sunday she took uh, my mom, my aunt, and my uncles to mass. She just went and sat down like she would if she had been uh, still in Marquette, Michigan, which is where they moved from. Um, and um, 
somebody, I guess an usher, somebody asked her to move to the back. And that was the very last time she and the girls went to that um, church. My grandfather, who was uh, African and Native American in heritage, uh, he continued to be a Catholic and the boys continued to go to Mass. And so I have cousins who are Catholic and cousins who are not. Um, I got this very strong sense that, you know, looking back, that uh, I had a, a real cultural divide in my family because when I went to spend time with my father's side of the family, it was very, very southern. Uh, the food was fantastic. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother could do wonderful things um, in the kitchen. And uh, there were smells that they had in their home that we didn't have in my mother's family home. But it was all good. I mean, I really liked being both places. Um, and that began to be kind of a pattern in my life. I think I'm one of those people who, as Gloria Anzaldúa talked about uh, the borderland or the frontier, I Partially because my heritage is so diverse, you know, African, Native American, and European. Um, grandfather really wanted us to remember that we were also Native American, but there was no way to kind of know what that tradition was or how to live that. In retrospect, I think that probably part of my attraction to being in nature was from that, but later on I found out that there was a lot more to it. Um, my early poetry has a lot to do with family, valuing family, and so I'd like to do uh, a few poems that reflect family. Meditation on my mother, Afro-Indian Madonna. Summer simmers as the sun sets over the railroad tracks. Food incense drifts through the house, bouncing off the walls and getting all up in my head. All is well, sweat glistens on mama's brow. Quietly, Lester leaps in, body and soul from radio, courtesy of daddy -o. She works over the fire with rhythms and strings in tune with the universe. She loves a man, and I understand why she is my mother. Fine and mellow, dark Madonna with soulful eyes and kind hands. A giver of life, 
a woman of light, soft and magnetic like the moon through the darkness, to show the way she made a way. For my brook, Lawrence Williams, do you remember Dinah Washington singing Unforgettable? Sunday's fried chicken, mashed potatoes with a pool of gravy in the middle and succulent green beans way back before black was beautiful. Do you remember the sweet smell of bananas from Aunt Nellie's dining room table, black girls dressed for church shining with Vaseline in the morning sun? Mahalia's sweet thunder from high in the choir loft, Dad's steadying hands on your first bike, and Grandpa handing you a silver dollar way back before black was beautiful. Remember Reverend Bobby on the radio, Reese and the Smooth Ones on 63rd and Cottage Grove strutting like young princes in neon glory. Sugar Ray dancing in the ring, the Regal Theater on Easter Sunday. Jackie Wilson on his knees in the spotlight, crying lonely teardrops. B.B. King's pleasurable pain singing, sweet, sweet 16. Joe Williams blowing the blues in front of a Count Basie crew. And the first time the love light shined on you. Way back before black was beautiful. Do you remember shirtless summer nights in the projects, running hide and seek, the sound of crickets, the flash of lightning bugs almost caught, the moon, the stars, and the endless black sky above the railroad tracks and trees, and those two-story brick buildings we called home way back before black was beautiful. Before we said beautiful was black, the beauty of blackness was before our eyes, enriching the deep, deep soil of our lives, and we grew. Father, guide me through this night. Across the autumn sky, the wild geese are leaving. Across the red-orange sunset, above the bare arms of trees, the warmth is dying in the air descending cold upon the ground. Twisted fingers scratch at the sky. Abruptly, the song of cruel light seems to end as the last echo of my voice wanders off and dies somewhere in crimson splendor. I breathe in the silence and then sigh as bell tones like colors drift into my window, red, orange, Pink, purple, blue, black. The West languishes, ruled by women haters and profit takers, while we captives dream, struggle, turn toward the night, and trudge toward dawn. With the lifeblood of the death wishers fading at my back, spirits unknown live in my ears as I sing a song of faith and new beginnings, soon, 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 I will perform my father's ritual, solemn and proud and filled with fire. As I sing the sun across the sky in the morning of my manhood, and some youth will say, 
this too is my father's house. When I first began to recite poetry before people, it was after I had returned home to Chicago and got very involved in the black arts movement. And there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm skipping over, but you need to understand that we were living in an environment where the dominant culture was constantly giving us messages about our inadequacy, our inferiority, um, our lack of history, and the civil rights movement and the black arts movement began to turn that around and we began to reclaim our cultural life. Um, the ancient well that we could drink from and be renewed again. So those of us who were artists at that time and growing in the black arts movement, Chicago was one of the centers of that. And it was there that I began to meet some of the major figures of that time, Gwendolyn Brooks um, and her husband, Henry uh, Blakey, Gwendolyn Brooks Blakey, Henry Blakey, um, were real nurturing uh, mentors for me, who was terrified and insecure. I was writing in a journal, you know, all through college, but really afraid to just put my voice out there. And they gave me support and encouragement. Um, lots of really incredible people. Um, so I was learning how to write for my community, how to give them a mirror that would reflect back the reality of who they were, rather than another cultural political mirror that would always say, you're distorted, you're less than, uh, you're not worthy to breathe this air. So uh, in 1980, I was working for an organization called the Youth Project, and we funded, it was national, local office was here, the Midwest office. If any of you are familiar with uh, uh, the Minnesota Nonprofits, Minnesota Council on Nonprofits. John Pratt is the director. Okay, John and I and a woman named uh, Dawn Stockmo were the Midwest office. It was a real mind opening experience for me to travel around the Midwest and also around the country and going into communities, uh, low income but of different backgrounds, and seeing how really everybody had very similar stories that reflected injustice. And um, well, when I was working there, John asked me to do, as a poet, a fundraiser for the uh, what came before the DFL? Minnesota DFL. The Farm Labor Association. Thank you. 
And so I agreed to it, but I had been writing all this black literature, right? I did not write for a white audience. That was not what I was here to do as uh, a black artist. But I agreed to do it. I asked two of my friends, uh, also from Chicago, Kerry Thomas, who's a pianist and composer, and David Wright, uh, a reed player and composer. And within a very short period of time, we pulled together this performance that just used a lot of shorthand. I said, when I wrote this, I was thinking of this piece of music and the rhythm is like this, and we did it. But what I discovered was that my process of creating, observing my world, observing people, feeling them, I don't have really great psychic boundaries, like I feel what's ever in the room, and I didn't realize how much I was absorbing my environment, both natural and people. And so the poetry that I wrote, I discovered that night, connected with people beyond the ones I had assumed were my audience. And I had to rethink why I did what I did. And as Carrie and David and I began to form this entity called Ancestor Energy, you know, I was coming up with images and ideas that I, you know, as I could say, well, where did that come from? Because it wasn't exactly what I was taught and where I was born. These images and rhythms and ideas from the world were somehow coming through what I wrote. Even when I was focused on writing about black people, writing for black people. The other thing about being in Minnesota and loving the environment, I got involved with another group called the Mississippi River Revival. I guess I don't even need to look for that one. Mississippi River Revival. Uh, Larry Long uh, had had an encounter with uh, Pete Seeger, who started the Hudson River Revival. So he thought, we've got this major waterway right here in the middle of our city, and it's toxic. And we need to do something about it as a community, like all of us that live along this river. So we thought the best way to do that was certainly to bring the environmentalists out and those organizations, but we thought the way to bring people out was through culture, through music, through art, through dance, and let people talk about their lives through their culture. And it worked. We had festivals over, I'd say, close to a 10-year period going all the way from Aiken and Itasca. And I think there was a river flotilla, people on con in canoes that went, eventually all of it went all the way down to New Orleans. But there were places I know of along the river going all the way through Missouri at least where river revivals were being held. And since that time, people's attention and care about the river have grown quite a bit. Not that we were the only ones, but you get a group of people excited about something and active, and there's just this kind of organic growth. 
Um, what's my time like? Right now? Yes, you have 45 minutes for discussion and talk. <laughs> okay. Um, let me jump to college. Um, went to Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, 1964. Uh, pretty isolated place, pretty foreign compared to growing up on the south side of Chicago. Um, I even had a bit of a Norwegian accent for a while. <laughs> you know, I listened and kind of absorbed all of that. But, um, you know, after my first semester, I kind of lost my connection to Lutheranism. Uh, but I kept studying spiritual things, studying literature, history, got really caught up, but it was a days of movement. And while I was there, uh, I met a woman who we had invited there as a part of our spiritual life uh, lecture series. I was a part of that team that did that. I had uh, a teacher, a mentor named Eleanor Haney. There's a few in here who know her, remember her. Eleanor Haney uh, was an ethicist who was influenced by um, Ronald Niebuhr, uh, social, I don't know, how would you describe him? He had sort of a, a social bent on Christianity, that Christians needed to be in service across all kinds of identities. So. Ellie was influenced by him. And um, we brought in Bernice Regan, who at that time had been a member of the... Um, why are these names escaping me? Um, she was a, very much a part of the civil rights movement. And I think the, before when we met her, she was a member of the Freedom Singers. And she was a member of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So she had been deep into that movement. And she came up and did uh, a week-long residency that was a, helping us understand African-American song. And all of a sudden, the culture that I came from on the south side of Chicago was making a whole lot more sense to me the music that I had just listened to in a casual way, I began to understand that it was certainly music to comfort you and inspire you, but it was also music that was about resistance. Uh, that a song like Steal Away, Steal Away to Jesus also meant we're leaving tonight, meet by the river and head north toward the North Star. Uh, and there's a whole host of songs like that. So this might have been 1967 when I met her, and I periodically come across her um, off and on through my life. She really fed me a lot, and that was an encounter that really set in place this idea of being an artist and being an activist. And using my art 
as a way to build community. Andy Young passed through there, and because at that time I was also a conscientious objector, I at one point ended up one-on-one -on -one in a room with Daniel Berrigan, which scared me, really scared me. I don't know why it scared me so much, but, um, you know, the draft board was really after me, and they started snooping through my community at home and my community at school, asking all kind of questions, trying to verify if I was legit or not, legitimate or not. Um, but um, I really value that I, I had that experience. Um, I think I'm going to just say a little bit about how I create something. Um, again, observing both the environment and human beings and being open. Um, I realized in retrospect that as a child I was already meditating. When I was out in those urban fields wandering around, that was a very timeless place to be and also have a sense of belonging to everything I was surrounded by. And when I began to actually learn about Vipassana meditation, I had been reading about it, and I figured out that Vipassana was the one I really wanted to learn about, and it took a while to make a connection with people here to learn about it in, you know, in a real class and practice. Um, so, um, I don't know, I'm tempted uh, to just tell you that because music is so important and the spiritual literature that I've read is, so, is very important to me and that I found over time that my process of writing was to weave together songs, images, rhythms that come from everywhere and try and weave it into a whole. So that when I'm before a group of people, you will more than likely hear something from your own cultural frame of reference. Or that you might recognize from other experiences that you've had. And because I've listened to music so much, in particular jazz singers, there's maybe a handful of jazz singers that were really models for me as far as how they sang a song and paid a lot of attention to what the words meant. They weren't just being musical. They were trying to help people feel the story that was being told. So my role models were people like Carmen McRae. Joe Williams, Dinah Washington, oh, Mahalia Jackson. Um, the poets that influenced me were E.E. E. Cummings and also Walt Whitman. And I remember taking a class in college toward the end of 
my college career, and it was on American literature. And they got to Whitman, and I was really having a lot of problems with the teacher, because I understood Whitman. I mean, I went right to Whitman. I understood what he was talking about. And it was like the teacher wanted to put him in a little box. And I was seeing so much more that was just, to me, profoundly spiritual and erotic, spiritual and erotic. And it made a lot of sense to me that both of those things would be woven together to express things that help you really see the world more clearly. But, you know, in academia and America of the 19th and 20th century, that man's vision was pretty suppressed in a lot of ways. So, uh, I was talking about the Mississippi River Revival. I went into, I was about to leave the Mississippi River Revival because I was a young father and uh, I had a job at the time, as I told you, uh, with the Youth Project, funding grassroots community organizing. And I was exhausted because I had to be on the road seven to ten days out of each month, living out of suitcases, sleeping on couches. Sometimes I could, you know, get a hotel room or a motel room. And I was listening to these really challenging stories of people struggling um, with issues of injustice, of poverty, of toxic waste in their community. And the way that I'm listening, of course, I'm like absorbing these stories. And I come home and I just want to like zone out, you know. So I told them I was going to quit. And they said, okay, we understand that you got to quit, but um, why don't you come with us down to Prairie Island? Uh, we're going to go to a sweat and... Uh, and, you know, this will be our goodbye. Well, there was this voice, I'm always hearing voices, <laughs> that was saying, this is not what this is about. <laughs> this is not what it's about for them that invited you, and there's something else going on here. So, I know that, but energetically, I'm feeling something really different from the time of the invitation to the time I get to Prairie Island at the homestead of uh, a spiritual leader at that time, a man named Amos Owen, who was affiliated with AIM and also knew that he was here to serve all nations, which he got criticism for, but he knew what he had to do. Anyway, so I go down there and... I'm feeling pulled, like something's different in my body. And I go through the sweat lodge. I see things I've never seen before and can't logically explain in the darkness of the sweat lodge. And um, energetically, I start to go through 
uh, well, shorthand for what I was going through was agony and ecstasy all at once. And it was like having my nervous system rewired. And it was hard to function in the ordinary life that I had been living. Uh, but there was a poem that came out of that. Uh, and it's called We Are the River. Song of a Blackstone Pipe. Um, Blackstone Pipe has to do with a prophecy, and I won't go into that story. But Song of the Blackstone Pipe, I think the content of the poem says something about what the prophecy might have been about. Healing wings of fire fly over the river and let the moon rise, moon rise. Healing wings of fire fly over the river and let the moon rise, moon rise. Dusk light, dawn light, dance over the river and let the moon rise like the moon rise in song. Song about the red river. Flow into the sea, singing in the sun. There are a river. I don't want to stay here. I don't want to leave here. Until I hear song, the song, the song, the song of the black river. Flow into the sea, the music in me, they are a river. I don't want to stay here. I don't want to leave here. Until I hear the song, the song, the song, the song of the white river. Flow into the sea, dancing on the rocks, they are a river. I don't want to stay here if I can't hear, hear the song, 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 song of the yellow river. Flow into the sea, waving peonies, they are a river. I don't want to stay here. If I can't hear, hear the song, the song, the song, the song, the song, the song of a brown river, muddy, muddy brown river, mighty Mississippi river of all humanity, we are the river. With love, all our rivers twine and flow, gather and grow into a great great river and then empties into the sea for our journey just began we are the river journey never ends we are the river rising up 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 like a green water creature all dripping with seaweed raising its hands to caress the flaming flower and then rain rain rain
Um, I'm going to make a few quotes, and then I'll do my last poem, and then I'm going to see uh, what's kind of up in the room and what we might want to talk about. Okay. Yeah, I try and create poems using threads of reality, looking at things as they are, trying to put them into words and rhythms and melody that help people see things as they are and be with the reality that we have with a different attitude. Um, there's something, for, this quote is from the Essenes. When you make the two into one, and when you make the inner, inner like the outer, and the outer like the inner, and the upper like the lower, and when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male will not be male, nor the female female, when you make the eyes in place, when you make eyes in place of an eye, a hand in place of a hand, a foot in place of a foot, an image in place of an image, then you will enter the kingdom of God. Uh, the second piece is an interpretation of the Heart Sutra. No thing, including human existence, has ultimate sustainability, which in turn means that no thing is permanent and no thing is totally independent of everything else. In other words, everything in this world is interconnected and in constant flux. A deep appreciation of this idea of emptiness thus saves us from the suffering cause of our egos, our attachments, and our resistance to change and loss. Beyond your flesh, beyond your room, your house, your piece of ground, your town. Beyond your state, neat region, or country. Beyond your continent or island. Beyond the third stone from the sun, our sweet Mother Earth. Beyond your mother, father, family, nation, race, class, and gender. Beyond all that. Yeah, beyond capitalism, socialism, racism, classism, nationalism, and the fascism that loves all our isms of whatever flavor. Yeah, beyond Jesus, Jonah, Buddha, Muhammad, Musa, Joseph Smith, and all the divine mothers cradling us, cradling us all, all. Beyond your hunger for oil, gas, coal, uranium, and wood, burning, 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 daily choking, the life from the precious air we breathe, and all that breathes us. 
beyond roach dust, mercury, and lead choking the life from the lungs, the brains, and nervous tissue of our babies, beyond our tears of joy or rage, beyond all our graves, beyond politics, sociology, spirituality, our humanity, or the latest theory we think explains it all, beyond all we believe is either grief or joy, who really knows distances in this vastness called universe? Who really knows the cost of our comfort, of all the petty, energy-consuming stuff we think we have a right to? Central heating, air conditioning, Central heating, air conditioning, cars, airplanes, electric lights, inexpensive clothing, recorded music, movies, hip replacement surgery, and your national defense. If you love your country more than the earth that cradles her, if you keep burning the fuel of fossils, you are dumping in your living rooms, you are torching your rafters, you're feeding your babies a formula of arsenic, mercury, and lead. Wake up and live now. Wake up in sunflower splendor. Wake up morning glory for the first time and live. What you have a right to is a natural world. What you have a right to is your movement through seasons, embodied or not. As everything turns, 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 we are dancing inside nearness, dancing in the sacred web of life, mind of Mud and starlight, sea and seasons, novas and notions, stardust in the chorus of all, singing planets known and un... What? There's a new one now? Ant hills, industrious grit, constellations spilling across, sweet home, allware. Ultimately, who we are is not the bag of skin we are in. Our energy spreads throughout all that is creation, tendrils, woven and weaving through all mother matter touching. We are touching all things all the time in unity, whether we know it or not. We are flying, spinning through space all the time, timelessly, endlessly, eternity, infinity. What a trip! Feel it! And now I press my palm against your heart breast. I speak softly to you now. As you see it, and feel it now too. I see you now with the eyes of my heart. No enemy, no other, transformed, revealed, awakened, naked, crying for a vision now, quaking. Beyond this global war zone of our own making, the stuff of conflict, conflict greed, arrogance, and fear, Will this be the inheritance of our babies, babies, babies? Will our babies have babies? Will they survive? Will they want to? Touch me, brother, with kind hands. Embrace me, sister, with hope heart. We are safe in this wisdom. Death has no dominion over life. Death is twin to life. A yin-yang unity of unending life in all its form and possibility. Touch beyond all boundaries and identities, fearlessly. Let us touch the earth with our naked feet and be glad for the earth to live. America must die. Yeah, I said it. 
For the earth to live, America must die. For the earth to live, all nations must die. For the earth to live, Germany, Spain, England, Egypt, Tanzania, China, Guatemala, and all their sisters, all must die, must be transformed. The snow will make us friends. The rain will make us family. The sun will melt our hearts. All of God's children are going to have rhythm now. The wind will teach us a new song that everyone can sing robustly, rooted in a deep democracy beyond what we know now. Listen, my friends have been committing suicide now. To me, it says something about how toxic our environment has become. We don't, they don't want to be there anymore. It's become physically, spiritually toxic. To me, it begs the question of where or how do we recognize what is sacred in our lives and be centered in that? How do we recognize the green sprouts coming through the concrete and treasure that? How do we recognize where the renewal is emerging and become one with that? How do we walk the way of the new world? Wherever we are going, we will all go together or not at all. There are spaces in the heart as vast as the universe. And who knows distances in this vastness? I see you now. I see you now. I see you. So touch me now, kind hands, in this morning's glory transformed, revealed, awakened, naked, with kind hands, in hand, in hand, in hand, gripping. I got you now. I got you. Stepping gently on this holy earth, now striding toward sunrise. Take my hand, and we can make it. So when I'm afraid, I know you're there for me, as I am for you. We are a lovely lot together. Oh, blessed curse. It's a natural compassion, a green and verdant celebration. We are rescued from our egos. Our words, are, our words, our world is spinning and springing into renewal. And yes, it hurts like hell. We feel there is no beginning and no end. There was never any more beginning than there is now. Nor any more youth or age than there is now. And will never be any more heaven or hell than there is right now. Man and woman, man and man, woman to woman, all. Mating and mirth and magic, manifesting a new world with our breathing and being. There is no sanctuary except in compassionate action. There is no sanctuary except in compassionate action. No nation, no race, no religion, no gender. Soon a blossoming burst of energy on our liberation day on the radiant Kundalini ground. We shudder in holiness. Earth is home. <laughs>
earth is home. 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 So, you must have uh, heard a lot of stuff that maybe pushed buttons or triggered memories or brought up questions. What do you want to talk about? Like 
I was valued just being who I was. Um, and it was also an aspect of learning about poetry, too, because people in the street spoke poetry. <laughs> and um, once I was exposed to people like uh, Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, who wrote in everyday black speech, um, my ear began to pick it up more and more. Like when I was, when some, you know, old lady <coughs> next to no formal education would put something out there that I was, oh, that is brilliant. I'm taking that. <laughs> and, you know, she was just given it freely. And I, yeah. Yes? Can you speak on the, the title, which is like, We Are Here to Awaken? Like, I, I guess I just want to know what you, more about what you think about it. Oh, that comes from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. We are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. And when I first read that, it really struck me because Again, it was, I felt it was speaking to me in terms of realizing how my identity has really grown and evolved over time and how my body has changed over time. You know, I got that name when I came in, but that, you know, usually when you put a label on something, you have this expectation that it would be what it is when you name it, but we in fact go through all of these changes through time and illness and whatever. So it's like, uh, you know, it's kind of not a wise expectation to think that you're going to stay a particular way. And I guess the reason I love the Heart Sutra is that it really talks about how we're always in transformation. We're always changing. We're a process that's continuing to unfold, which I think leads to some kind of an ultimate reunion with something I can't name. Uh, so we're here to awaken. In the context of the U.S., we're really encouraged to see ourselves in terms of our race, sex, and class and to be afraid of one another based upon those labels. Um, I have learned that it makes a lot of sense to not be afraid <laughs> of those differences. And because my parents gave me this uh, concept of extended family. When I moved here, my survival strategy was to create an extended family again. And as a consequence, I ended up <coughs> with a family and community that's like very diverse. It looks like maybe three or four different languages exist in my extended family. And in a way, it was also a political kind of decision for me, too, because I thought if 
all of these people in various places know me and feel connected to me with some kind of affection, if I disappear, they'll come looking for me. <laughs> well, <laughs> you'll come looking for me, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, you uh, spoke, I think it was uh, when you were speaking of the, um, your experience of going to a sweat lodge, about um, having experience of being rewired. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that. Was that, I take it that was a very sudden experience, but was it gradually evolved? Well, I think it began with the invitation. I noticed a change. The strange thing about that is that after it was over, I began to people, sometimes I knew them, sometimes I didn't know them, were like looking at me and were telling me some piece of information that I really needed in order to stay functioning. And the label that some people began to put on it was Kundalini. And I hadn't been doing Kundalini yoga or anything like that. I was in really good health and exercised, you know, a lot. But definitely my spine was on fire and I was experiencing things that I really didn't have a frame of reference for. So um, it was, you know, it's like the veil between physical reality and whatever is beyond that. It's like... uh, there were times when it was just not there. So that's really what that was referring to. But, um, you know, my, the catalyst for me was, I think, reconnecting with my ancestors because it felt like, especially at that time, they, they had some expectations of me things they wanted me to do. <laughs> and it was like I didn't really have any choice uh, about about that. Um, you know, it was, it was like being in a different land, and I didn't really understand a lot of what was going on. Luckily, you know, to have access to somebody like Amos Owen was like really good. But there are other people that were kind of showing up uninvited that were right on time. Uh, because I could have gone to Hennepin County, uh, to the psych ward. <laughs> no, really. I mean, I have met people since then who, in fact, had to go to the psych ward and be medicated for big parts of their life. Uh, luckily, my wife at the time didn't push me in that direction, and I'm just really thankful I didn't get medicated. So how did you how did you integrate that? I mean, did you go through a time of being unstable, and then did it begin to make sense to you the Kundalini experience, or you know, just to use that word? But well, I had my art to channel it into. I did a lot of writing. Um, I was going to uh, sweat lodge every weekend. Um, and I did that for close to two years, and at some point it kind of felt like all of these people, you know, descending upon Prairie Island and Amos and his family, just seemed like it was too much 
and I didn't want to kind of be a part of what I felt like was oppressing his family. Um, one of the things that that experience got channeled into was um, part of my, uh, one of the people in my extended family now is a woman named Juanita Espinoza. And she and I uh, started something called the Native Arts Circle. And it was basically a service organization for Native artists in this region. Um, and right now that Native Arts Circle is uh, based in the Minneapolis American Indian Center in the Two Rivers Gallery. Uh, so it's like that energy could be channeled into things that were useful and productive. And I was kind of used to being able to put on a mask as a way to protect myself. Uh, what was disturbing at that time was that some people could see through that mask. Um, but it was it was good. Yes? Um, <laughs> that's a tricky question because when I was 14 years old, I think I had seen that famous Japanese Buddha and it really drew me, you know, that image. There was, there's a lot in that image. Uh, and when I was about 14 in art class, I made a blue Buddha that I felt really good about, and I gave it to one of my favorite aunts. Uh, my last religion class at Lutheran Concordia College was an independent study with Eleanor Haney about Buddhism. And I read a couple of books, and I think some seeds were sown there. Um, but I don't think it really all kind of came together for me until I, you know, I've been in this neighborhood, Seward, for, I don't know, a bunch of years. And I think uh, I finally found out about Common Ground maybe about six years ago. And for some reason, I just couldn't connect for a while couldn't get somebody and find out when things are happening. But it, it began to happen about six years ago. And uh, I took a class. And I keep taking that class from time to time. Because <laughs> it's different every time. It's not, I mean, maybe the same subject. But the way Mark explains things, you know, I guess because it's something he lives. When you live something, um, it keeps growing. It's alive. It doesn't stay static. It's not like your catechism. <laughs> Remember catechism? <laughs> All the right answers. We have time for one more question or comment. Do you uh, feel that to some extent sometimes your poems um, what at least some images are, in a sense, channel, whatever that might be. Well, I think for most artists, there is this thing of of uh, being open, and stuff just comes to you. 
Um, I kind of wonder about, you know, the religious environment that I grew up in. There was something both from the Old Testament and the New Testament, which was, you know, about a prophetic tradition. And being influenced by the civil rights movement and the voice of Martin Luther King, which was, again, prophetic. Um, having connections to both Anishinaabe and Dakota people and having them share their prophetic traditions uh, from time to time. I think there's some kind of element of that in what I write. I mean, the piece that I wrote at 19 years old about my grandfather, um, I had never been, ex there's, there's an image that I think is essentially Hindu about the wheel of life. And there's also a reference to um, um, a rebirth. You know, I wasn't taught that. I mean, once in a while an adult would see a child do something and say, oh, that child's been here before. But it's not like <laughs> it's not like it's something that's taught, like a you know, a philosophy or a theology. So I don't know. This stuff comes through. And I, I think it's a natural part of being an artist in the creative process. I'd like to thank you all for coming out. I really appreciate your attention, and I hope it was helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.